We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. going to get the fairy tale story up against the narrative of it's coming home this is the arsenal vision euro 2020 daily my name is elliot smith you can block me on twitter yankee gunner it's hard right because when you get to these tournaments you wind up in a situation where there's a strong narrative that builds a storyline that everyone gets behind and in this one you have the fairy tale story of denmark crashing headlong into the narrative of it's coming home and uh, i can imagine that people will feel strongly on one side or the other but uh it is a fairy tale that will end for one, but uh, a heck of a ride along the way. What we're going to do today is actually talk about the Denmark game first, so it doesn't get short shrift, because obviously there's going to be a lot of excitement to talk about England, but candidly, as far as that game goes, I don't know that it was necessarily the most thrilling, uh, as Ukraine just got pounded. So we'll do our best to give both games the attention they deserve. You know what needs attention? Your drink that should be in your hand, when you are standing in Las Vegas, when you're at the Football Fest event, August 20 to 22nd. That's what needs attention. And you know why that drink will be in your hand? Because I will have placed it there. Because it will have been free and I will have given it to you. Or someone you like even more than me, which could be a universe of people that will be there. But that's the case. Please come. Uh, you can hear Stats Bomb Transfer uh, Symposium, where, where Ted will literally give all the secrets about how Liverpool and PSG do it without uh, the stuff that he doesn't share publicly. Um, we will have... Live podcasts, live Q&As. Uh, it looks like we're potentially going to have a whole bar rented out on Saturday night uh, with food and drinks. That's still in the works, but there's definitely cocktail parties that will be thrown and and um, nightclubs that are going to have access and uh, watch parties for the game Saturday and Sunday. So please, please come. Go to footballfest2021.com, footballfest2021.com. Register. The rooms at the win, the discount on the rooms at the win, that is running out. Uh, so that's not going to be there much longer. But obviously, you don't have to stay there. You can stay wherever you want. It is going to be a hell of a good time, and I hope that you'll be there uh, for it. So thanks to everyone uh, who has already signed up. I think it's over 300 people now, which is really incredible because I know it is um, you know, only probably people in America who can make it. And for those of you who are not, we had an event in London already planned. COVID scuppered that, but we will do it again. And uh, hopefully, wherever you are, we'll, we'll come see you. Invite us. We'd love to be there. Here with me, listening to this long, rambling intro, is Phil. You can find him on Twitter at underscore Phil Costa. Hello, Phil. Hello, Elliot. How's it going? 
I mean, it's going the way a, a, an outside observer goes when watching the these powerful narratives crash against each other. So let's start with the fairy tale narrative uh, first. You know, mm-hmm. it is unfortunate in a way because this fairy tale narrative with Denmark probably does some disservice to the quality and talent of the team. Losing Ericsson for this tournament obviously would have been a dent in their chances. And I wonder if they had not lost him in the manner and they did whether we'd be regarding Denmark as sort of an underrated, talented team. But there is no denying. I mean, you and I were doing these episodes, Phil. The Ericsson thing happened. We didn't even do an episode that night because it was so jarring, uh, and there was no need to talk football after that. And then, you know, when we talk next, and, and obviously they lost that opening game after that horrific incident, you know, we just sort of said, this is a team that probably be happy to crawl back home, forget this ever happened, and just be thankful that, that Christian Erickson is still alive. And that may sound morbid at this point, but at the time, it really felt that way. Before we get into the game, just how remarkable is it? And how much do you think the Erickson moment galvanizes team in terms of being able to go from that low a moment, losing your first game, and near tragedy, nearly losing a teammate on the pitch, to elevating your game to this degree and making it to the semifinal of the tournament? Well, I mean, that's it. They just deserve incredible... You know, uh, credit because as we as we alluded to, we we spoke about them maybe um, suffering a bit in the tournament because, as you mentioned, they almost had one of the most tragic moments uh, in probably all of their lives on the pitch there that day. And us ruling them out was not based on their talent or their you know tactical capacity or the quality of their manager. It was simply due to that horrendous day and. Uh, potential mental scarring that would have occurred from that but this kind of story this journey has been the prime example of turning you know something really tragic that thankfully had a nice story um into some really strong motivation and, and we can see that with each passing game they look stronger they look you know they look fit they have some added uh, edge in the final third now with Casper Dolberg coming in and you know it's just been amazing to watch and I found myself really sort of rooting for them at every opportunity that I get and it's been a a real kind of pleasure to watch them and have them as as kind of my second team you know yeah I mean I think everybody's going to have them as their first team if their team's not in it and certainly their second team uh up until now if they were England fans um the game itself was interesting because I I think you know when Denmark took the two two nil lead for me it really felt like a fait accompli but obviously that man again, Schick, comes through with a goal just seven minutes later in the 49th minute. And then I think Denmark kind of rode their luck at times. I mean, there was one moment, I mean, I'm not going to remember who the players were, but where one of the Danish players took a shot on from a wide position where, I mean, if he slides it to his right, there's there's two men standing alone to tap it in. Mm-hmm. And, and I was praying that that wouldn't come back to bite him because it it really looked like the wrong choice. But other than that, I mean, do you think Denmark sort of struggled with psychologically managing the game once they got 2-0 up because it it seemed like for the most part they they really let the Czechs have maybe too much of the game at that point potentially I mean it's a very difficult position to be in because I think it's after the most dangerous lead in football <laughs> well exactly I, I mean it would have dawned on them very quickly what was at stake and I think for a team who are maybe not experienced in this kind of occasion their natural instinct is to go into their shell a bit. Um, so for me, I, it wasn't a surprise to see them kind of retreat ground and just kind of ride things out. But 
I think it's fair to say that the Czech Republic are no shakes. You know, this is uh, a good team that have given a lot of other teams very big problems. I mean, you mentioned Schick, who seems to have the golden touch at the moment, but they've got a lot of good players. I mean, Holesh coming in from deep was was a threat all game. They have Thomas Suchek as well. And, you know, they're a big, strong side. And when they're, like, chucking balls into the box and they're on the edge of the box kind of camping you in, it's difficult. Um and I think they deserve credit for that because they kind of just thought, you know what, we've got nothing to lose here. Let's just throw everything at this Denmark defence. And, you know, they got the goal and they really did try. But I think just in the crucial moment, their legs kind of failed them because of that, what was essentially 120 minutes of war against um, against uh, Sweden. Mm. You know, it was just yeah, that was such a... <laughs> sorry, was it Sweden? Or who did they play in the... In the in the game previous, yeah, wasn't it? Uh, no, no, that was Ukraine that played Sweden. Yes, it because uh, it was it was a very physical game. Yeah, so um, it was just a sort of battle basically, and I think in those crucial moments, their legs just couldn't get them over the line. And you know, um, even though they they kind of finished strong, I still fancied Denmark as the you know the deserved winners on the, the day. The, I mean, Netherlands, the Netherlands, it. Was, it. Netherlands, yeah. the Netherlands was that's it. Yeah, with the red. Yeah, yeah the, the delete red card. Yeah. Um, uh, question for you about Schick, by the way. I mean, obviously you are a Bundesliga watcher. I mean, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people listening who maybe, but it, it's a league that you, you know, the, your domestic league for where you're living right now. So you probably know a little more about about him and Leverkusen than maybe some of the people listening. Obviously, he's been a star of the tournament. A lot of times we see tournaments like this really create a platform for players to move on in their career. I mean, I think Spinazzola will be the heartbreaking story because he, he did his Achilles. Mm -hmm. I think both Barca and PSG were looking at him. He's a player who's had injury problems. The tournament really put him in the shop window, looked like he was going to get, you know, potentially be a life-changing move for him, and now that's probably scuppered. You know, I look at Schick just from a pure data standpoint, and I see a guy that looks like, you know, good, but maybe not super elite, but in this tournament showed there's maybe more to his game. Have you watched a lot of him in the league is, is he a player who is playing sort of beyond his level in your view in this tournament what what would you expect to come for him from this because he's only 25 i mean he he's young enough that he could still get a big move somewhere if someone's head is turned by this no definitely i mean the, the thing is with patrick schick i think a lot of people forget that he was very close to joining juventus mm. um after he had uh, that incredible breakthrough at sampdoria when he looked like dennis burkamp for six months <laughs> Um, and I think it was a heart problem in his medical that stopped him from actually going to Juve. Um, but then Roma came in and didn't quite work for him there. But I think he suits the Bundesliga. He's a very well-rounded, natural footballer. I mean, he's got a, a gorgeous left foot, as we've, as we've seen. But he can score with his head. He can score with his right. And I just think he's a really interesting proposition to have as your focal point. Because even though he may not be prolific a lot of his all-round game, for example, first touch, bringing others into play, you know, smart little flicks that uh, can kind of bamboozle defenders. I think he's a really intelligent player and maybe we didn't expect him to, to have such a good tournament, particularly for a side like the Czech Republic. Um, but, you know, what can you say? I think he's in a wonderful vein of form and, and hopefully he can carry that on into the, into the season because, you know, I think any move this summer will be difficult because, um, Leverkusen can kind kind of just say, "Oh yeah, but didn't you see him at the Euros?" And now that's another twenty million on his price tag. So um, a lot of teams may not want to do that in a you know a transfer market is still very much in the recovery mode from from COVID. 
But for sure, I think there's potential for a move late, later down the road. And I really like him as a player. I think he's really intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, for me, an introduction to the player, I have to admit, knowing basically nothing about him going into this tournament. As far as Denmark goes, I mean, I think, you know, they they have just played some really nice football. They have the ability to play on the counter. They have the ability to possess the ball. I think maybe they don't get enough credit for that midfield looking you know, pretty tight. I mean, Hoiberg, as much as I, it maybe pains me to say it, is a player that I think has looked pretty good in this tournament. I mean, for you, other than Damsgaard, who I think has gotten a lot of attention, you know, there are players like Braithwaite and Delaney, um, you know, guys that we know a little bit about and have been around a bit, but but maybe don't get the, the same amount of attention. You know, who's really st- stood out for you as the heroes for, for Denmark? No, definitely. I mean, I th- first of all, I think it's the in the Denmark squad, there's such a, a nice blend of kind of everything at the moment. They have experience, exciting young players, uh, seasoned professionals who have kind of been there and done it. So I think it's just kind of come together perfectly for them. Um, but in terms of my standouts, I think, first of all, Kasper Schmeichel and Simon Kier in the defence have been like unbelievably solid and influential. I mean, those two are you know, very much their spine of the side. Obviously, they have Delaney and Hoiberg in the middle, but I've been so impressed with Simon Kier and Kasper Schmeichel, not only for what they do on the pitch, but kind of their presence and um, sort of influence off it as well. I mean, especially in the aftermath of what happened with uh, with Ericsson. And also at left wing back, Joachim Mela. Man, Atalanta, they, they can just find these players. and. Yeah. You know, um, he was playing in Belgium, Mailer, and I think Southampton were interested in him. And but you know, so Atalanta are known for their wing back system. They obviously already they've got Robin Gersens there, who had another couple of bright games in the Euros. They have um, Hatterbor, who who didn't actually make the uh, the squad, but he's been really good. And you know, they just find players for this system. And again, that assist for Dolberg. I mean, what even is that for a left wing back to, to kick <laughs> the foot passes? Sensational, yeah. Straight into his path. Dolberg didn't even have to adjust or stop his run in any moment. And it was just one of the like most brilliant pieces of technique I've seen during the tournament. And it genuinely made me like stand up and say, wow, like that was amazing. And um, that's what you watch football for, you know, the stuff that you can't, you, can't, you can't even dream of doing. And these guys are doing it in a European quarterfinal. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, facing England, I'll be curious. I mean, we saw England come up against a, a team that uses a back three system in Germany and decide to go man for man and just match them up. Obviously, the talent level a little different when you're talking about Denmark. Do you anticipate that England might try to match them up the same way they did against Germany? Or based on the dominant performance against Ukraine by using just their superior players in a more attacking formation that Southgate might say to heck with this man for man defensive stuff. I like what we did when we played four, two, three, one and, and just battered the opposition. So, you know, do you, do you think he might try to, to neutralize the back three or, or stick with what he's doing now? I think he's going to stick with the four um, purely because I don't think he considers Denmark having the rounded threat of Germany. Um, and that's not, me being, you know, down on Denmark, they, they've shown a lot in this tournament. Damsgaard, as you mentioned, kind of been the breakout star. Braithwaite is very, you know, uh, very experienced, a very good forward. So, but for me, I think if you look at the Germany squad, they could attack from kind of any avenue. And with Denmark, I just kind of feel like their bias is slightly towards the left. Um, 
And for that reason, I think England will look to take the initiative and ask the questions of Denmark. Um, but, you know, it's, we can say this, but I think they've scored the second most goals in the tournament now behind Spain. Um, so, you know, they're no joke going forward. And, and what I like about them is that they've got a lot of people who have scored in the tournament. I mean, there's been Paulson, Dolberg, Damsgaard, um, left wing backs p- pitching in, defenders. I mean, Delaney scored as well the other day. So, you know, they're a very rounded threat. And I think England will be wary to, um, to consider that fact. But for me, I just think in terms of their stature and form, um, I would prefer England to play with a four and kind of get another creative midfielder in, into the forward line. But for me, there's no main issue if they, if they do decide to match them up in, in terms of the wing backs. We can, we've seen that they can do both. Yeah, and I mean, you just sort of wonder because Mala has been, Mala, how do you say that? So I get it. I think it's Mela. Mela. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you can Mela. Like he, he's been an important part of the attack for Denmark. But you know, if you put like a Sancho on the right again, and you have Mount drifting over there like he did in this last game, and Walker, I mean the the extent to which that they could exploit the space behind Mela. Um, I said it wrong again, didn't I? <laughs> I, 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 I yeah, I apologize. But like the the extent to which they could exploit that space, I mean that. I know Sterling has been a really important factor for England, but do you, do you think that, that that will be the interesting dynamic to watch then? You know, Denmark trying to use their left wing back as the focal point of an attack and England maybe exploiting the space in behind and, and isolating Vestergaard? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you look at that back three, um, you know, Vestergaard is a very capable player. Um, but as we've seen you know, slow defenders can struggle in a back three and that's, you know, fairly, you know, you don't need a degree in football analytics uh, to understand that they have to cover more space. They have to um, be dragged into areas they don't like to defend in. So for sure, I think um, England will look to be uh, targeting him because I think Christian and Kier have been largely good this tournament. Um, So obviously for me, Vestergaard is, is kind of the guy to isolate in that back three. But I think Denmark will maybe look to play on the break a bit more. I think yeah. England, obviously, they've been so strong defensively. No goals conceded still. Um, you know, Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips just kind of hoover everything up in the middle, even if we have some doubts about their um, ability to progress the ball. So, you know, it's going to be a really interesting matchup because it's kind of, obviously, Spain and Italy is the headline clash but if you actually look at the the two teams, they're both in good form. They can both bring players in, bring players out, and their, their squads have contributed in, in a lot of different ways. They play kind of different systems, so it's going to be you know, uh, a bit of a tactical battle as well. So I think it's going to be a really interesting game. And yeah, even though I've, I've got a, a very soft spot for Denmark at the moment, I'll be... Um, you know, obviously <laughs> not upset to see them go. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you look at the Denmark team, they have a nice blend of ages. You know, they have some of those 30-year-old players who are experienced. They have some more exciting younger players. You know, like obviously Damsgaard comes to mind at just 21 years old. But I, I think setting aside what happens now against England and acknowledging that we are sort of part of an Anglo-centric media ourselves... If you step outside of the England narrative for a minute, this is really the story of the tournament. And I I think that's not to take anything away from England, but looking at what Denmark went through and how far they've come from that moment, having lost their opening game in the most heartbreaking fashion imaginable. I mean, when you look back on Euro 2020, as fun as it has been, and 
the just incredible number of memorable games. Uh, you know, Spain, Croatia, France, Switzerland, in terms of just drama and excitement throughout the tournament. There's there's been so much fun. But do you think stepping outside the the sort of England narrative for a minute that Denmark will wind up being years from now one of the stories of this tournament that people will look back on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's not a doubt in my mind that that's the case. I think obviously there's been some shocks and, and some brilliant games, like you said, with Switzerland winning against France. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, just the whole sort of journey, the story, the kind of surprise factor, um, it's just what tournament football is all about. There's usually one or two sides um, every tournament, whether it's a World Cup or a Euros, that kind of capture the the neutrals and I think Denmark are absolutely in that territory this year and you know they didn't just lose the first game they lost their their first two games um and I think if they I, I'm not sure if it's if I'm mistaken but I think they're the, the first team to reach the semi-finals in a Euro uh in a European championship after losing their first two games so that just shows you know how incredible this turnaround has been and how you know, the momentum is, is carrying them so far. And I'm, I'm so pleased for the team and for the fans because, you know, it could have been a really tragic and horrible experience, but instead they've managed to really find some unity and togetherness and kind of similar to what England fans are experiencing at the moment. I think it's just such a lovely thing to be a part of. You know, it, it look, obviously what happened can galvanize a team, give them something to fight for, to rally around, but you know, they lost their next game right after that happened. The fact of the matter is, I think when you say it's just about that storyline or just about them rallying around Erickson and, and that galvanizing them, it can be a way to write off the talent of the team. And I think certainly mm-hmm. that is a galvanizing event, but it's a team that has played well. There are players that have really acquitted themselves beautifully and some very talented players in that team, so they deserve credit for that. I think we have given enough respect to that game, that storyline, and that team to now be allowed to switch gears to England. And I say that only because I was worried if we did England first that we would overlook Denmark. And it, it, it's too important a story and too uh, good a performance throughout the tournament for them not to have deserved their moment. But obviously a lot of people listening will be listening for this section, the section where we praise England. I think it's really this simple, for, for me anyway, Phil, and you can tell me if you disagree, Um England have tremendous attacking talent. They have the ability to pummel lesser teams if they choose to do it. And that's not been the way England has chosen to do it. And it turns out they have an exceptional defense as well, and they can win that way. As you said, Rice and Phillips hoover everything up. Maguire and Stone's excellent in the center. You know, between Shaw and Walker, and and Shaw will probably come on to because he's really having a hell of a renaissance here for England. But it's an excellent defense, but a team where I would say most people feel the bulk of the talent is in the front four that can be picked. And I think Southgate deserves a lot of credit here because he didn't do what he did against Germany. He looked at a team that's inferior and said, let's go out and beat these guys early. And so he goes to a 4-2-3-1. He plays a 10 in Mount. Sancho comes in. I don't you, I don't know that you listened to the episode that I did when you were out uh, not feeling well, but I joked before this game that it's good news for Southgate because now that Sancho is a United player, he plays in the Premier League and he can pick him. And, and he did. <laughs> and I mean, I realize it's just a coincidence, but it's a hell of a funny coincidence that the minute he becomes a Premier League player, he starts in a quarterfinal of, of the tournament, having hardly played. But Sterling, Mount, Sancho, and Kane, I mean, that's a lot of, of talent up front, attacking fullbacks and Walker and Shaw, and and 
honestly, Ukraine couldn't live with it. So for you, I mean, is the store part of the storyline here just uh, Southgate finally decides to lean in? There it is off the bingo mug. Lean into the strength of this squad, the the attacking talent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of you know his his capabilities as a manager, I've never had an issue with his credentials. I've just found at times there has been a touch of conservatism when maybe he could have, um, you know, put his foot on the gas and really gone for a team. And I understand it's different in tournament football because there's no margin for error and, and the stakes are much higher. So I can kind of forgive him in that aspect, but I think he's played this tournament absolutely perfectly. You know, the switch to the three against Germany was brilliant. Um, and the switch back to the four was was again a, a signal of intent against Ukraine. He's rotated players in. He's brought Trippier in at left back, at right wing back. He's brought Saka into the side. He's played Foden. He's played Grealish. He's played Mings and then brought Maguire back in. It's just like he's managed the squad so impressively well. And even, I don't know if you managed to catch his... Um, uh, his post-match interview after the game, but he, you know, he made a point to mention the guys that haven't featured yeah. and how he felt mm -hmm. so sorry for them. And I think it's just been a, a sort of a clinic in man management because at the end of the day, you can only pick eleven players. People are going to get upset, and that's normal. That's just part of being part of a squad and and what happens uh, in a major tournament. But I think he's just said all the right things. He's made all the right decisions. Um, and yeah, it's just been so impressive to kind of watch his evolution um, as well as the sides, you know. So I think the only thing I can say about him are, are positive and it's been a real sort of pleasure to watch them, which I haven't always said in the past. Yeah. And, and the only reason I, I'm, you know, look, you could say no, Elliot, you got it wrong because, yeah, they scored four goals here. But the story of the tournament is they haven't conceded a goal. And I accept that. But, you know, against Germany, Thomas Moore's in alone. And I realize it's not really a defensive mm -hmm. error per se. It was a, a giveaway by Sterling, but and he misses wide. But if he just puts that in the net, like people expect, even if Ing can go through, you know, you're not saying, oh, they've kept a clean sheet in every game. And actually, I thought in the first half, Phil, there, there were chances for Ukraine. They did get into the box. They did get behind the center backs at time and couldn't find the final ball. I don't think it's that they've been totally airtight defensively. Now, I don't think this has been, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the, the classic maybe Italian or German sides of, of generations gone by where you just didn't get a sniff. Mm -hmm. I, I think England have done well defensively. I'm not taking anything away from them. But I still think that if you just look at the talent, England has the ability to go out there and outscore the opposition. That hasn't been how they cho they've chosen to play pri previously. And I think a little bit more that is what happened in this game. Now, there's a couple of things we can discuss from a performance standpoint in this game. I think... The one I want to go to first, just because it is the inclusion, is Jaden Sancho. Not involved directly, directly in... I guess there is a goal he's involved in because he carries the ball up the pitch, and that's sort of what he's there to do. I noticed that he would drift left at times. He and Sterling would swap at times. He's very comfortable on the left and has done a lot of damage there for Dortmund. I thought this was a very, very good performance without being spectacular, because at least in the first half, there were a lot of times where he and Mount just struggled to get in the game. The, the game wasn't really flowing through their side, and so he wasn't really in it. When he did come into the game, I thought he did a lot of good things. So I'm curious what you think of Sancho's contribution in his first start and whether it will be enough um, to keep out a possibly returning Saka or Phil Foden. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think there were moments where the game kind of passed him by, but also when he did have the ball, I thought he was very direct and dangerous. I think, first of all, 
there may be a slight misconception about Jaden Sancho that he's kind of this uh, chalk on the boots winger who can beat players and um, you know he's going to be looking for the byline and the cross all the time. But people underrate his technical ability. Having watched him, you know, in probably more depth than a lot of you know casual England viewers, um, you know, I've watched been able to watch Dortmund a lot more closely, and his sort of technical quality, his vision. Um, his his control of the ball, he just looks so natural. Um, and I know he led uh, sort of any other player in take-ons yesterday. I think he completed five, uh, which was more than any other player. But he's never going to be the guy kind of like Sterling to, to stand up his man and, and look for the byline. He's very much um, a combination player. He likes to, to be around other people. He's got technical quality to kind of do the one-touch passing and drift inside and swap wings and you know, he's just a really smart player, really comfortable. And, you know, it's what you, you said earlier. I don't think he was, you know, devastating. And I don't think everything was able to go through him. But I felt like when he did have the ball, um, there was always a, a directness and a purpose to his play. And that's all you can ask for at the end of the day, because um, you can't be 10 out of 10 in every game. I mean, we saw it with Saka in, in the sort of the second game that he started. It wasn't exactly a clinic, but what he did was very neat, very tidy, and that's what you can ask for, really. Whether he stays in the side is is so difficult because we said, oh, no, Saka's not going to keep his place, and then he did. And we're like, oh, no, Sancho's not going to keep his place, and he did. And, you know, Foden's kind of completely been marginalised now, and he was the one starting the first game. So it's so difficult to predict which way Southgate's going to go because the, there's just so much talent. Um, but... Either way, I think if he starts, I could say he's justified it. But if he was pulled out, then I could say, you know what, that's fair. Maybe he wants to go a different way. But I don't think he was bad by any means. I thought he was very solid, very neat, and um, yeah, did what he needed to do in the in the crucial moments. I certainly think the substitutions tell you a little something about who the manager regards as the most important players for him, because it's yeah. Kane, Sterling, Rice, Phillips, and Shaw that come off. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say that Maguire and Stones aren't, but you know your center backs then kind of just stand back there and, and and watch the game for a while. But yeah, I think that tells you a little something. Sancho, Mount, you know, they stayed out there for the, for the balance of the game. Um, and I think part of it too is, it, this is going to sound weird because I'm going to say England had to be patient. Well, they didn't have to be patient. They scored in the fourth minute. But, mm-hmm. I mean, Ukraine were in a 5-3-2. Yeah. And it really was a bank of five and a bank of three right in front of the defenders. And for the wide players... There was, I mean, Mount was drifting to the right a lot, and he, you know, on times he would give it to Sancho, at times he'd get it. There are three players. You have the right, the, the left center back, the left wing back, and the left midfielder, just all over there. I mean, I, I think this was designed to be as defensive and as protective a, a, a system as possible, and certainly going behind in the fourth minute for Ukraine would have been, I mean, for any team a real problem, but for a team that came out to sit in one of the more defensive shapes I've seen in the whole tournament, you know, I, I really think it, it was devastating for them. And I mean, do you agree that? Because, you know, if you look at it, then England don't score again until the 50th minute. But after that early Kane goal, England had a lot of possession where they couldn't really do much, not because they were doing anything wrong per se, but because that that 5-3-2 was just incredibly compact and, and chewed up all the space. I mean, I don't think I've seen a line of five like that so flat and rigidly just standing in a line protecting the penalty area, there, there was no room for the for the wide players to operate. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, their their plan was was absolutely to try and keep England at bay. Um, and I've said it time and and again on this podcast. You could be playing, you know, uh, Djibouti. You could be playing Haiti. It's difficult to break down. You know, when teams when they just put so many people behind the ball and people kind of expect uh, fireworks against teams like this who come to look and defend and frustrate the opposition and they give them the ball. But it's so difficult, really. It's tough, and I think, in terms of England's case, like you said, there was a lot of huffing and puffing, but no blowing of the house down. Mm. Um, but you know, they just kind of had to be patient, um, make sure they had their wits about them defensively, but keep pushing, keep you know probing, and eventually they'll find a you know a mental shortfall somewhere, and that's what happened with the with the set piece goal, with the Maguire goal. It was a lovely delivery from Luke Shaw, and I can't remember who it was that was marking him. Maybe Sigankov, um, but Maguire just absolutely bullied him in the air, and you know that was exactly what they needed, nice and early in the second half. And then essentially, you forced Ukraine's hand, and they just didn't have enough about them to to kind of come back into that game. But you know, it's it's hard, really. It's difficult, and that's why sometimes when Arsenal find it difficult to, to break teams down, obviously we're not the most exciting attacking, um, you know, side under Mikel Arteta by any stretch. Um, but, you know, teams are wise. They, they know what to do. They know how to fill in gaps. They know how to prevent uh, your good players getting on the ball. And it's really difficult. So, you know, I think England did a really good job just being patient, probing, pressing and waiting for that one mistake, that one lapse of, of concentration and then when they made their ba- the breakthrough, it was kind of game over from that from that Maguire goal, really. Yeah, because I, I remember watching the, the first half and just looking at it and saying, I don't see where the space is. I don't think England's, you know, because there was a little bit of criticism at halftime from England, from the commentators I was watching, uh, the studio commentators, and even the broadcasters talking about England kind of having gone a little flat since the goal. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I don't see where the space is. Now, I think maybe this is where Rice and Phillips, who have been excellent and deserve their praise, but where they hold you back a little bit is if a team wants to get that compact and that defensive, n- not having an extra midfielder who can step forward and also deliver a ball in behind, you know, also pull a defender out of position. You know, I, th- I think both of them are a little bit more limited, mm-hmm. even if Phillips didn't look that way in the first game of the tournament. I mean, do you think that that's the case there also that, they are really in there to shield the defense, to mop up anything that gets past, you know, gets past those front four. And so in a case where you have a very defensive system like Ukraine were in, they maybe can't contribute as much. But again, it was already 1-0. So keeping the ball and probing for space isn't the end of the world, right? When you have a team that's willing to put eight men and, and at times 10 men behind the ball, you know, within 20 yards of their own goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other point that we haven't mentioned is that their set-piece prowess looks to have returned. I mean, they scored two headers in this game, one from Maguire, one from Henderson. And it's easy to forget that in the in the 2018 World Cup, they scored nine goals from set-pieces. Yeah. So if, as we mentioned, teams are sitting deep, frustrating you, not giving you any space to kind of thread any balls through, all it needs is a good delivery from a wide area and you've got people like Rise in the box, Harry Maguire in the box, John Stone in the box. And just adding um, you know, another string to your bow, shall we say, finding that set, that set-piece prowess again is only going to be a good thing for England. And that kind of came in clutch for them because you know that's what essentially broke down the game, that Maguire goal. And then after that, they were very comfortable. So 
I think, again, it was just very professional from England. There was no panic. They all seemed very aware of what their roles were, what they were supposed to be doing. Um, you know, Kane looks like he can run a bit now, which is nice. Um, and obviously he scored the two goals. I mean, he's, he's always going to score goals where even if he's, you know, not fit or um, fit. So well, Let's talk about that a minute. Because the one thing I would say is, look, I would it would make life so much easier for me just rooting for England to win the whole damn thing if it was Calvert-Lewin up front. You know, anyone but Kane. Just just anyone but Kane up front. Um, you know, as it is, I'm rooting for England because I want my friends who are English to be happy and, and you as well, obviously. But, like... I, I I can't help it. I don't like the guy. I can't root for the guy. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just where I'm at. But does Southgate maybe deserve credit in the sense that there may have been some pressure to move off of Kane early in the tournament, looked really immobile, was not having the impact that you'd expect from the player who's supposed to be the talisman, the captain, the best player in the side, mm-hmm. looked limited in his mobility. And then, you know, he just sticks with him. Not going to take him off. Not going to use anybody else. He's my guy. He starts. He plays the whole game. And now you're starting to see that bear fruit. I think it's good movement and a really clever finish um, for for both goals, frankly. I I just think Kane is a player who, while I may not like him, you know, his quality is pretty hard to dispute. Southgate stuck with it and starting to see that, you know, bring returns for him. So does Southgate maybe deserve credit for having the conviction that this is my guy? And even though he's maybe not at his best right now, I'm going to stick with him and he's going to work it out and start scoring. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we knew this was going to happen. I mean, we spoke about it, you know, unless Kane is seriously injured, he is not coming off that pitch. We knew it from the first game. We knew it in the second game. We knew it. We know it now. Um, he's his captain. He's the go-to guy, you know, and if you need someone in the box to score a goal, Calvert-Lewin had an amazing season, but, you know, Kane's it's, you said it's quality, it's very difficult to miss. So, but let's not, you know, mince our words. He was awful for the first two games. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I think lesser managers might have said, I've got I've got other attackers I can go to, and that's what I'm going to yeah. do. Yeah. Potentially, potentially. Um, but for me, I just kind of always felt like he was unflappable in his faith of Kane. Um, so I didn't really expect him to take him out at all. And I think what we spoke about with Calvert-Lewin not being even in the squad that day kind of, um, uh, confirmed our suspicions, but you know, sent a message he, to Kane too, though, right? Like you're my guy. You know, I'm not even gonna, I mean. this other guy. Is, I'm not even going to put him in the team, so you'll know. You know, he's not close to taking your spot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, he looks to, to have a bit of sharpness in his game now. I mean, it's, it wasn't exactly a surprise. It was a long season with Spurs. He'd had a couple of injuries, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you if you look at him and his quality alone, he's one of the best strikers in, in the tournament. So, you know, I just think having someone like that in, in form will always give you a chance because he can score any type of goal. We spoke about it with shit before, but but Kane has a you know a bullet of a left foot, really strong, right, good with his head. He can kind of do the deep thing. He can do it all basically, and you know Southgate deserves credit for it. But I don't think his position was ever in any real jeopardy barring, you know, a serious injury when it would have been, you know, the completely wrong thing to keep him playing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's at at least two other players that deserve huge credit here, but one that we should talk about is Luke Shaw. Um, As the acid in my mouth continues to grow, praising Spurs players and United players. (laughs) But uh, I mean, Luke Shaw was excellent in this game and he's really come through a period where I think his, time at the top of the game was was in jeopardy and I 
you know, I think certainly his the physical shape he was in is something that had been, let's say it, ridicule, ridiculed by by observers. Um, you know, maybe a guy who, just from a pure dietary standpoint, was maybe hypothesized not to be keeping himself in the best shape, but he's been excellent in this tournament. And he was excellent in this game, and I I think he's a little bit of an enigma for me because I have never really rated Luke Shaw because I've kind of seen him as kind of like a push and run and cross it into the box fullback, but he's really good at that. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's not such a, a a bad thing. I mean, what do you think about Luke Shaw's role in this team and the extent to which he's really just kind of rehabilitated himself from a, a pretty low point in his career, I would say, where I, I don't know that anybody thought he was going to stay at the elite level. I mean, it's amazing what you what can happen when you're freed from the shackles of Mourinho. Um, great point, yeah. The, the constant, not just... Um, you know the the physical sort of gestures on the touchline, but it, you know he was criticizing him every week. Um, you know, I they, there was one quote when he said, "I basically had to teach Luke Shaw his position." Um, and imagine that from your manager. I mean, that is no way to to help you progress your game. That's no way to put you in a state of mind where you think you can when you can be at the top of your level for club and country. And I think you saw it last season particularly in the second half of last season. He looked to have shed a, a few uh, pounds, should we say. I think he looks a lot leaner. Um, his technical quality has has honestly never really been in doubt for me. I think even since he was a teenager, breaking through at Southampton under Mauricio Pochettino, you can see that this guy was, you know, had the potential to be top quality. And I think England not utilising that would have been a, a real shame. Um because I think he's, you know, so naturally gifted, but obviously there were issues with maybe his mental, uh, the mental side of his game, not believing in himself. And he struggled with, um, obviously had a horrendous leg break a couple of years ago. So that's naturally going to put um, a bit of a pause in your development. But I just think he has kind of everything you need in a modern fullback. He's very energetic, very strong. He likes the direct duels, um, but he's also got end product, you know, as we saw with the, with the free kick and the cross to, to set up the goals. So, you know, I'm actually quite pleased for him because I think he's taken a lot of fire from a lot of different angles. And in terms of the player, I've got a lot of time for Luke Shaw. I think he's, you know, a really good player. Um, and even though he, he does play for Man United, I've got a lot of time for him. So, you know, these guys finding form at just the right time, I think he's peaked perfectly for this tournament. And even though Ben Chilwell was very, you know, com- competent, very good fullback, um, I think he's better as a wing back and for this kind of uh, forward back system, I think it's much more natural and you can see him really finding his groove now. Yeah, yeah, well, good for him. I, 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 before we move on um, and maybe just quickly look ahead, I, you know, I think Raheem Sterling is a special player. I've thought it for a long time. That's not a particularly uh, radical viewpoint, but he's coming off a season that was not his best. And City seem poised to move on from him potentially, with rumors being that he uh, he can go, and Mares can go, and Kane and Grealish may be coming in, which you know good for City. But for me, Sterling is still one of the elite players in the Premier League and and one of the elite players in the world, candidly. And while it wasn't a great season for him, it's been a great tournament for him, which is great to see because also we know that there are elements of the English media that will love to scapegoat him if things go wrong. Uh, I think. The ball for Kane for the opening goal, which really I think is the is the moment that makes this such an easy quarterfinal for them, given what Ukraine's tactics were, the way they were set up to probably just try to get a nil-nil in penalties. Um, 
it's it's a sensational ball. And he's a player who, this whole tournament, when England have needed some kind of spark, something a little bit special, just that extra bit of quality in a team playing maybe within itself, it's been Sterling who can provide it and can switch to the right side and do it like he did in the last game, um, you know, driving across and really creating the move that set up the the winning goal. And then in this game, getting England off to the right start. How impressed have you have you been with him in, in this tournament? And just in terms of that that ball, I mean, I don't know that it necessarily got the attention it deserves. It's absolutely incredible. It takes three or four Ukraine players who are all playing to deny that kind of space out of the out of the play and makes it I don't want to say easy for Kane, but you know, pretty straightforward from there. Yeah, he's been really good. And actually it's quite interesting just going back to the the Harry Kane kind of comparison. You know, he scored the, the two goals uh, against Ukraine and it was kind of like, how could you ever doubt him? And, you know, if this is this is what happens when you don't rate Harry Kane. And it's just like, well, you know, people were entirely justified of their criticism. Um, you know, he wasn't good at the start. He's come good. Amazing. Good news for everybody. And I don't think Sterling has been afforded that kind of reception um, at all in the media. Um, obviously, you know, he's, he's had a a difficult relationship with them because they basically targeted him for four years of his life. Um, but, you know, he, as you mentioned, he had a difficult end to the season with Man City, one of his lowest scoring campaigns. Um, but he's just so unique in what he brings to the side. I mean, obviously there are a lot of talented players um, and we've spoken about them already. Grealish, Saka, Sancho, Foden, you know, the names are pretty much endless, but he's, I don't know what it is. He just brings something extra. He's so direct. And um, one thing I love about Sterling is that he's always committing players when it, whether it's off the ball, on the ball, you know, he's always running at players, taking them out of their comfort zones. Um, If he's running into space, he's kind of making defenders look over their shoulders and panic a bit. And I just think he's such a well-rounded forward um, in terms of that, in in terms of the role that he plays Um, that inside left channel, when he's sort of focused on the goal and that's it. I mean, he's just so dangerous. Um, and as you, as you, as you alluded to, that pass was just a lot of people maybe didn't think he had that in his locker, but it was some lovely play to come inside a couple of men, see the space, but to, to not only see the pass, but to execute it, you know, I think Kane finishes it well in the end on the stretch, but as you said, really clever play, and I just think to to this England side, he's kind of like gold dust because I don't think if you put anybody else in his position and ask him to do the role that he performs, maybe Marcus Rashford at a push. Um, but I think he's even he's kind of different. Um, and I just think he's he's so unique to this England side. And I'm really happy for him because um, particularly to score in Wembley, um, you know, his his hometown, he's from Brent. Um, it's just been a really sort of good few weeks for him, and I'm I'm delighted for him. Yeah, I am too. I mean, I hope he doesn't move somewhere where I have to hate him because he's a player I've liked at a club where I just don't let myself get too worked up about it, City. Because let's <laughs> let's face it, they're they're in a league of their own in terms of what they spend, mm-hmm. and they're sort of a a club that's been manufactured in a way to just do what they're doing, so it doesn't bother me as much. So I can kind of enjoy him there. Um, I don't know that that'll be the case depending on where he goes, but. I guess then we're, we're going to do something dangerous here, and I hate to do it. Let's just for a minute say England get past Denmark, and I am not mm-hmm. saying that is by any means a, a given. I think it could be a tricky game, but certainly England, I think, will be big favorites, it's fair to say. Looking ahead to a possible final, do you have a preference 
between Spain and Italy. I mean, I think it's a really tough one in a way because Italy have lost one of their more important players in Spinazzola. They don't have the big tournament experience. But I think they've arguably been maybe a little bit more impressive than Spain, who do have the big uh, tournament experience, but I think are much, much more suspect defensively. So, you know, if I'm an England fan, I'd probably rather face Spain, and the, despite their their greater experience in part, because you're not always sure where the goals are going to come from for them, although I know they've scored their fair share of them. And I think defensively, you're always in the game with them defensively, whereas with Italy, that's not necessarily the case. So do you see it the same way, or do you maybe have a different perspective? Yeah, I think on the whole, Italy have probably been the best side in the, in the tournament um, across the whole, what is it, three weeks now. Mm. Um, you know, they had a, a couple of difficult moments against Austria and even against Belgium. They, they sort of put the pressure on at the end. But I think on the whole, they've been the best side. Um, and Spinazzola is a, a huge blow for them, but they've kind of got an able replacement in Emerson. I don't think it's a disaster with him coming in. And, you know, people like... Nicolo Barella, Lorenzo Insigne, you know, Federico Chiesa, they seem to be just finding another level now where, I mean, that goal from Barella was sensational against, uh, you know, against Belgium. This is a box-to-box midfielder showing footwork like that in the box and a finish like that. So, you know, uh, I think Jorginho has been arguably the player of the tournament so far. Um you know, and they just have so much experience in the back line. I mean, obviously, <laughs> Chiellini and Bonucci are have been here and worn the t-shirt before. They're absolute warriors in the back. So, but then I, I think about it and then I look at Spain and I see that I see them making a lot of chances. I see them, you know, high in the shot numbers, high in the XG numbers. And it's just that finishing, uh, you know, that finishing edge, that cutting edge that we spoke about in the preview pod. I mean, we knew this was going to happen, but I'm kind of feeling like, well, it's going to happen eventually. And they scored five goals against Slovakia scored five against Croatia. Mm. So it's not like they're complete bums up front. You know, they've, they've had games where they've scored um, a lot of goals. So it's really difficult, honestly. I mean, I think I would be just leaning towards favouring Spain from an England fan perspective. As you said, defensively, I think they can be uh, got at. Um, but I really don't think Italy are the big favourites that some have made them out to be. Yeah, I, I mean, let's face it. An England-Spain or England-Italy final is going to be absolutely insane. Blockbuster stuff. And I I honestly don't envy you having to go through that. But my goodness, it's it would be incredible. And, I, and that's not to put down Denmark, who still have every chance to get there and would be an incredible story in themselves. But yeah, I, I, I would love to see England make it. I'd love to see England win it all. But I, I, I think England-Italy, England-Spain, either of those would be great. In terms of the Italy-Spain... Ty, do you have a do you have an instinct one way or the other? I mean, uh, as I said, it's so difficult. Um, I just think Italy are riding such an incredible wave at the moment, and they kind of seem to have a lot of things going for them. I know we spoke about Immobile, but he hasn't really kicked off this tournament. But there's they've shown that they've got goals from from deep in midfield. They've got goals from out wide. They can even score set pieces. So I just think as a as a rounded team in terms of their defensive capability, their attacking threat, their solidity in midfield. Um, I just think Italy are edging Spain in that sense, but I, I'm really not here to to underestimate Spain because I know that they just got through against Switzerland. But, I mean, let's be honest, they were the, the much better team in that game. And 
even though they weren't amazing, I thought they deserved to, to win. So, you know, with people like Pedri in the side, I think Busquets has made an immeasurable difference to the midfield. Um, you know, they've got talent that can hurt you. So my natural instinct, my first instinct is going towards Italy, but I really wouldn't be surprised to see Spain pick up a, a shock result. Yeah, well, I'm <laughs> really excited to discuss these games with you. What a tournament. I, I Phil, it's been... It's been as good as it could have been, right? I mean, there's no, there is no way this tournament could have been any better. Realistically, it's just been extraordinary. Have Have you enjoyed it as much as I have? I, I assume so. Completely. I'm um, I'm pleasantly surprised about what we've been given as a you know even for the neutrals and even with a team to support. I think I can maybe think of what two games that have been like. Oof, that was a tough watch. Um, but I think on the whole, I thought people would be knackered and injured and people you know teams will be not pushing themselves and tactically conservative but you know we've had unbelievable goals unbelievable games we've had drama we've had underdogs it's just ticking bingo for like the perfect international tournament and yeah i'm just really enjoying it the first few weeks have flown by um and yeah these these ties next week could be really tasty and I'm just going to, you know, enjoy them while they're here because, you know, we only get it sparingly, this kind of tournament. And, you know, it's a bit of a gamble which way it could go. So, and we've been blessed with a, with a good one this time. So, yeah, really happy, really enjoying it. And um, obviously, if England can do it, then that would be the, the perfect cherry on, on the cake. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, after everything that we've been through the last few years, I feel like y- you deserve that. But saying you deserve that means someone's going to get their heart broken again after a tough couple of years. So, I mean, there's there's only one country that gets to feel happy at the end of any of this. But, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm fine rooting for England. And for those of you rooting for anyone else, I, I hope it happens for you. Let's leave it there. That's an extra long addition. We waited a day to get it out, so there you go. There'll be a regular pod tomorrow, as there always is. Phil, again, it's just been an absolute pleasure doing this with you. I'm glad you were fit enough to start this one. And we've got uh, three more to go, I guess, right? Yes, the final stretch now. Um, yeah. Here no, we go, we as they get- say. Here we go. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No so, fan of... Pat, Patty, uh, Patty Vieira back back in the league. Back yeah, in, yeah, back good. I'm, I'm, I'm wishing him good luck already because I think he's going to need it. So Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm going to be supporting him in the 36 games next season. As will I. All right, we'll leave it there. Phil's on Twitter, underscore Phil Costa. Thanks, Phil. Pleasure. Thank you. My name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Three more of these to go. What a tournament it's been. I hope you've enjoyed this. Just something extra for you. We've got the regular pod tomorrow, as I said. And until then, remember, as long as your team's still in it, wherever you are, whoever you support, it's coming home. Coming home.